0: A new type of Christianity has arrived. The children of today are not growing up with the same Christianity that their parents did. Now, in a new era of social media, where all of us are being exposed to a new line of thinking, being taught new ways, new, renewed, if you will, ways of thinking, many are deciding how they would live their life based off something now called progressive Christianity, a Christianity that some may consider is calling what is good evil and what is evil good, a Christianity that is more concerned with self-satisfaction than repentance. You see, we are in a dire situation, brothers and sisters, because our children, many of them are going one of two ways. Some of them are choosing this new progressive Christianity, while others are choosing to abandon the faith altogether. But why is this? Is it simply the fault of the TikToks and Facebooks and YouTubes of our day? Or is there something deeper? You see, the Bible actually teaches that Jesus comes and he tells us to judge ourselves first before we point the finger at the world. And I want to pronounce something to you that may sound controversial at first. Traditional Christianity has birthed progressive Christianity. Many of the ideologies that we see in progressive Christianity today has an origin that started in, in traditional Christianity. Progressive Christianity is simply our logic applied consistently to a further extent than we have. You see, there has been things that's been going wrong for a long time, even in a Christianity of the parents of our children of today, a Christianity that has been a compromise in Christianity and subtle, yet incredibly important ways. And so we have started to create a monster in our own image. And it's all because of a departure from the biblical Jesus. See, traditional Christianity is like the parent of a problem child, progressive Christianity, which has learned everything that it has become from its parent. And while the parent can criticize and while the parent can see what is wrong in the life of the child, the parent is unwilling and unable to see That the child is only acting out because of the actions of the parent itself and because of the hypocrisy of the parent, there has been a blindness that has come upon it to repent and to become the example it ought to have been from the beginning. And I want to submit to you that this downfall slowly but surely has started because of something that I'd like to call the gospel of inclusivity. The gospel of inclusivity is a gospel that is inclusive to the hearer. It accommodates the perspectives of the world as far as possible, even at the cost of an authentic gospel message. We preach on topics that a cultured Christianity agrees with while shying away from anything that might offend it. We are focused on making sure that we have feet in the doors of our churches. We make sure to preach in order to hear the amen. And we make sure that our words soothe the ears of the hearer. But yet biblical Christianity is different. The gospel of Christ is one that does not preach to accommodate the perspectives of men, but to bring about a repentance, a change in the hearts of men. You see, the authentic gospel makes sure make sure that the hearer puts away their own perspectives when they come in contradiction with the word of God that we preach without fear of man, but fearing God above all else. First, a gospel message that is not about filling churches, but instead about being authentic with what Christ brought us. And now you can hear what I'm saying and you can say, oh, yeah, that sounds just like progressive Christianity, this new Christianity where everything and everything goes, where you can be you and you don't need to repent. And yes, that would be true. But I want to submit something a little bit more radical than that for you and that. No, what I just described to you was traditional, modern, traditional Christianity. And that modern traditional Christianity has been the very thing that inspired all of what we see in progressive Christianity today. That we, when we think about pointing the finger, what we ought to really have done is to point 10 fingers back at ourselves first. Because that is simply a product of us. You see, when we look at what progressive Christianity preaches and values most, we see things like the sexual revolution and you can lie with with anyone sexually, no matter their gender, no matter whether you're married or not, no matter how casual sex has been made acceptable amongst believers. Secondly, we see that what is presented is the right to abortion under any and all circumstances as the mother desires. And thirdly, we have a preaching of what we know today as universalism, that anyone can come into the kingdom. And in fact, everyone will be in the kingdom, no matter what they believed, no matter what they did. I want to submit to you that there are two sins of the traditional church that has inspired progressive Christianity. And in this teaching, I'd like to discuss both in detail for us to evaluate really where all this has come from. The first sin is one of unequal weights and balances. We read in Proverbs 1611 that a just balance and scales are the Lord's all the weights in the bag are his work. You see, God values balance, that there is an authenticity that we have in our lives when it comes to following him, obeying him and being authentic to the world and who we are. Yet traditional Christianity for a long time has gone out to put more emphasis, much more weight on certain commandments of God while ignoring others. We see, for example, that Jesus himself addresses this when he speaks to the Pharisees of his day and he tells them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dull and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Matthew 23, verse 23, for example. The traditional church have placed almost all its weight upon ensuring that sexual sins such as homosexuality or abortion is stopped within its tracks while ignoring other sexual sins that are prevalently being committed within the church itself. Don't take my words wrong to think that I'm saying that it's not worth having our attention on sexual sins. But why do we focus on certain sins? At the cost of others, we conveniently ignore because they are in our very midst. Barna Group has released surveys where around 54% of born again Christian men are addicted to pornography. And I don't even have to pull up statistics or news headlines regarding how pastors and priests are Oftentimes being found guilty of extremely disgusting sexual sins, such as molestations or rape and other indecencies. Or how about the great prevalence of adultery that is still going on within the church? How can we try to correct the world on its sexual sins while we indulge within it ourselves? And this is not on a small scale. This is prevalent within the body. You see, we love to protest abortion rights. We love and and look, that's that's fine. But listen, we don't see what's in our on our face. We don't understand that. Well, the root of abortion is sexual sin. Abortion usually happens because there was pregnancy out of wedlock or a pregnancy because of some other sexual sin. But yet when we watch pornography, we're promoting abortion itself because we are supporting the pornography industry, which promotes casual sex, which leads to more abortions. Or when we commit all of our adulteries we're promoting abortion. Because we are saying that we don't care about the sanctifying of a marriage anymore. We can go ahead and cheat on our spouses. But then we we show up with our posters and we protest. How can the world take us seriously when we have come with defiled hands to point a finger? You see, Paul spoke about those who are outside the church and the sins therein, and he told us what we ought to do about them. He said in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or swindlers or adulterers. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an adulterer, a reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I have to do with judging outsiders? it not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside, but purge the evil from among you. Paul writes and he says, yeah, don't associate with the sexual immoral, but don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about the world because the world needs to be reached. You need to go out in the world and be a light to them. Yeshua was among the immoral of the world so that they could see the light. But he says, I am Paul writes, he says, I'm talking about a brother here. I'm talking if there is someone among you who you call a brother who is sexually immoral and idolater, or any such thing. He says, I don't want you to associate with them. I don't want you to even eat or talk with them. I want you to pretend like they don't even exist at that moment until they turn from their sins and repent. But see, what we have done is instead of of judging inside the church, we have ignored the sins inside the church and judged those outside instead. We have judged those outside with the standard we should have used among ourselves. Just the other day again, I have heard about the, in the headlines of a pastor who's been covering up the sexual sin of a pastor under him for decades. And this is something that happens on a frequent basis. There is no accountability, no judging, no putting out and putting out of a pastor the moment that he has fallen. Put him out of the church. Do not let him preach. Do not let him be over a congregation if he cannot even make sure that his own body has self-control and discipline. The Bible tells us that the one who is in God but falls away is worse off than the one in the world. We read in 2 Peter 2 21, for it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Now, apart from these sexual sins within progressive Christianity, there is also the universalist gospel. That is the belief that no matter what you do, no matter who you are, you will be one day saved. Everyone will go to heaven no matter their works. And I want to submit to you that this in of itself was something that has been birthed by a theology that is in modern traditional Christianity as well. The sinner's prayer. You see this unbiblical notion of the sinner's prayer that you can pray a prayer and then you're saved and there is no requirement for repentance. There's no requirement for good works following as evidence of your faith. This is a gospel that is being presented where works aren't needed. And if you have a gospel where you can follow Jesus, but good works are not required at all as evidence of your true faith, then you have a the beginning of a universalist gospel, because both the universalist gospel, which teaches that faith nor works are important, is in alignment with the Sinner's prayer gospel, which teaches that, well, works aren't important. And when you teach this and you read what James said, where he says that just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. You can't. There's no such thing that exists such as faith without works that follow as evidence. Of that faith. But I understand where this has all come from. You know, we've tried to make it comfortable and easy for people to come into Christ. We have hoped to fill our churches with people because that has been our measure of success, except that was never the measure of success that Jesus had. He did not consider big crowds as himself being successful. He considered repentant hearts as being a great, wonderful thing. He desired to see people changed, their works changed, their faith actually placed within him. You see, the goal has for us become a thing of worldly success. The church is looking like they are being successful. But yet some of the most successful churches in the world are of a few people. But yet a few people who have been powerfully, radically changed by the power of the gospel. Because see, there is power, but that power of Yeshua is not accessed when we preach lukewarm messages that require no change in people. We read how he says in Hebrews 12, verse 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In the book of Hebrews, we're reading about how Christ bled for us because of our sins. And yet, what do we do in response to that? Do we indulge in the very thing that has put him on the cross or do we die to ourselves, die to what we want, repent of our sins and preach a message of repentance? We read further in Luke 9 verse 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke fourteen thirty three. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Romans 6, 1, What shall we say then? Are we then to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Stop preaching a compromised or seeker friendly gospel so that you can have more tires on your plate and feet in at the door. Yeshua told us that when we preach, people are expected to reject the message. In fact, he told us what to do when it happens. He said in Matthew 10:14, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Let me ask you this, brother or sister, when you go out and you talk about your Messiah, are there people who reject your message? Because if no one rejects it, but everyone accepts it because this is a loving Messiah who just loves everyone and who doesn't expect anyone to change when they follow him and who doesn't require repentance, who doesn't require dying to self. If that's what's preached, anyone would say that's a cool Messiah. Let me have a piece of him because it means I don't need to do anything to follow him. That's a cool deal and I get saved with it. Well, sign me up. You see, the problem is with that, even though everyone seems to accept it, you have reached no one and you have caused nothing but destruction upon his kingdom. You have place seeds for this new Christianity that we are seeing come up in the world to grow from. You are the spreader of Satan's seed on the earth because the gospel has been twisted, corrupted and compromised. Even in your good labors that you thought you were doing, you actually brought nothing but death upon people and put a false hope within them, having them think that they're okay and they're saved and they're safe, even though they're not changing, even though they don't want to, but they just want to say a prayer and be saved. God calls us to no longer be hypocrites. He calls us to make sure that we put weight on ourselves and the people within the church to be obedient to his commandments before we ever think about even lifting a finger to those outside of it, for God will judge those outside. The second sin of the traditional church that I'd like to talk about today It's not only how we place more weight on certain sins and commandments, but we have even gone as far as to destroy and completely throw out some of God's commandments just as we see within the progressive christian circles that well you know just try your best and be a good person we see that this type of flexible morality that whatever is good to you whatever is whatever seems good whatever doesn't hurt anyone else but otherwise it's okay this mentality has invaded but it has been in its origins Also in traditional Christianity, because, of course, if we say that certain commandments are no longer for today, what stops progressive Christianity from doing the same from saying, well, you know, we like this sin and so all commandments surrounding it. It's not for today anymore. That's old under the guise of the new covenant, where the law is indeed written on our heart. We have gone to say that we ought to only follow our heart and the conviction of the spirit upon our hearts but that any written commandment of God is no longer applicable to the modern day believer. The only problem with this mindset is that we fail to see that the very law written on the heart is the law that was written down first on stone. You see, the law on the heart is not different from the law of God that he has given us from the beginning, including the Ten Commandments. Because here's the problem. I can say, well, the law in my heart is that I can commit adultery or I can watch pornography or I can do whatever I want, because that's what the law in my heart says. This is what I feel is right. And there would be no nothing that you could say about that if you subscribed to the idea that we can do away with the written command we see, for example that the LGBTQ community have correctly criticized Christians who try and correct them using the law of God, while these very Christians do not uphold the law of God in their very own lives. How can we not apply our own logic consistently? If we want to use the law of God, the written word to bring correction to someone else, we better make sure that we ourselves are following it. But we are not following it when we outwardly and proudly even proclaim that many of God's commandments have been completely abolished by Jesus. Even if Jesus himself was actually keeping them and even if Jesus in Matthew five said he never came to abolish any of them. For example, we all have this list that we know as the Ten Commandments. Although I've been confused as to why we call it the Ten Commandments when we only ever talk about nine of them, because, of course, the fourth commandment has been conveniently abolished in modern Christianity, even though it wasn't always that way, even though the early church kept it the Sabbath day, you see. And by the way, let me just say this. I'm not a I'm not a Seventh Adventist. I'm not. This is not about me being some denomination that. I believe myself as to be simply a disciple of Christ who is only about following Jesus, imitating him. And what I do know is that this was the first commandment that our father in heaven actually did in order to demonstrate how important it was to him. We see in Genesis two, verse three, how he declares the Sabbath holy in creation as he makes the world and mankind. And he sets it apart as the seventh seventh day. And how peculiar is it that the Sabbath was the only commandment that God proclaimed to us to remember? As if he didn't know, it would be the very one we would all forget. You see, what we see is, according to the Bible, what is described as an incredibly important commandment. But in modern traditional Christianity, it has become nothing more than a footnote abolished to be forgotten, replaced by something like the Lord's day, which is a beautiful thing in of itself. Yet scripture never provides a provision for replacing the Sabbath. Another example is the perpetual biblical feast of God. What we have done is we have replaced God's seven biblical feasts, some of which have not even been fulfilled yet and are to still be fulfilled in the end times, including the Feast of Trumpets, where Yeshua shall return with a blowing of trumpets, the Day of Atonement, when he will judge the earth and the Feast of Sukkot, the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. We have thrown them out completely, forgotten them, and we have replaced them with, biblical, with feasts that are not biblical, not in your Bible, such as Christmas. What we have done is we have lifted our tradition so high to abolish the command of God, where he called it to be perpetual and kept forever. And Jesus spoke about this himself. And he said in Mark 7, 13, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. The progressive Christians have a right to say, how can you tell us that we can't preach a universalism gospel? How can you tell us that homosexuality is wrong? How can you tell us that our sexual sins are wrong? When you don't even keep the fourth commandment, you don't keep the biblical feast days. You look like the world in these aspects. You do whatever you want on the seventh day. Who are you to tell us which commandments we are to keep and are important? Who are you to judge what is to be abolished and what is not? If you'd like to learn more about the Sabbath, please look at my video. Should Christians remember the Sabbath? And if you're interested in learning more about the Biblical Feast Days, please look at my video, Five Reasons Christians are returning to the Biblical Feasts. But I know what you may now be thinking. If you want to keep the law P.D., go ahead, but you better keep them all. And my question would simply be, I would need to keep them all for what reason? You see, it really depends. If you think that I'm saying we need to keep the law of God in order to be saved to work for our salvation. You're mistaken. That's not what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about a deeper thing. You see, we have restricted our faith to let's just get saved and that's it. But Yeshua came and taught a gospel of the kingdom that's deeper than all of that to say that we need to follow him and imitate him and be a light to the world to look like him in every single way and do what his father told us to do. We are saved, but he calls us to deeper things. Many people think, oh, those are old commandments. There are so many of them, they sound like a burden. Did you know that there are more commandments in the New Testament than in the Old Testament? There's about 613 Old Testament commandments and the New Testament there is 1050. And some of them are repeated, so they boil down to about 800. So we see that there are more commandments within the New Testament. Is that not a burden also? Is that not difficult to keep also? See, none of this is about becoming perfect by our own works, but it's about us becoming theologically consistent in our beliefs for us to come together and say, look, all of God's law is important and that everything that Jesus came to teach, we have to witness was to build upon what his father started giving in the beginning. And you can look at me strange and say, well, PD, you're crazy. Because if you're like that, you better be making sure you don't wear mixed fabrics and you make sure that you eat right and all of this. You see, I want to submit to you that in the modern church, we're not studying the Torah anymore. We're not studying the Old Testament anymore. We have no idea what the law of God even says anymore. And that's why we would say things like that. You see, in the book of Hosea 812, he says, Were I to write to him our laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. All of these things sound so strange to us because we don't understand them anymore. But see, when God talked about mixed fabrics, he was specifically talking about wool and linen. No, I don't wear wool and linen, and you likely don't either, because modern clothing doesn't have wool and linen in it for the most part. And regarding diet, yes, I eat the way Jesus ate because Jesus told me that we ought to walk as he walked. And there are many teachings out there that tell us, though, that Jesus did away with it, that he died so we can eat pig. But all of them don't understand the context of the writings. And so they twist and turn to accommodate for their own Western diets. And I have teachings on all of this that you can sit down and watch. I have one where I go through every single New Testament verse about where it seems that God is declaring all foods clean and I address them. You can look at my teaching why Jesus casted the demons into pigs. See, everything that Jesus came to teach and preach was built upon the Torah and the prophets. He literally came to continue putting bricks upon the wall that was already being built by the Father in the time and ages before he actually came in the flesh. He spoke and said in 1 John 2 7, Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard in the beginning. Jesus spoke regarding it, too, and he said in Matthew 5, 19, whoever relaxes the least of the commandments in the Torah and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I don't know about you, but do you want to be in the kingdom, yet least in the kingdom? I don't know about you, but I don't want to be that. I want to be as close to my Yeshua as I can be. And many people have said, well, look, it's it's if it's not in the New Testament, I don't care about it. And, you know, what we don't understand is that Yeshua doesn't have to repeat everything over again in our New Testament for it to be valid. There is no requirement that the Bible makes for that. And the New Covenant is not the New Testament. I don't know if people realize this. The New Covenant is the law of God written on the heart of man instead of on a stone, changing your inner being so you can keep it. Holy Spirit empowerment, allowing you to keep it. It's not the Old Testament versus the New Testament. It's a continuous story that leads to Jesus. And this is why Jesus goes and says in Matthew five seventeen. Do not think I have come to abolish the law of prophets? I have not come to abolish, but to fulfil them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an odor or a dot will pause, pass from it until all is accomplished. You see, he is confirming the ongoing validity of the Torah and the prophets in this verse already is saying, hey, by the way, if anyone ever tells you that I come to abolish, to do away with any commandment in the Torah, let it be known to you that that is a lie, that nothing will pass away until heaven and earth passes away. And when he says that he's coming to fulfill these things, it doesn't mean to do it so that we don't have to. The word fulfill, plural in the Greek, means to bring it to its fullness. In other words, he comes and he comes to fill it up, comes to b- build that wall like we've discussed. Yeshua spoke for this reason and said in Matthew five twenty that your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. On, otherwise, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. How will we be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees? I don't know about you, but but, you know, they seem to have been very focused on keeping the law. But yet, Yeshua said that they were not righteous enough. He then continues and describes what it will take. And he says, yes, the scribes and the Pharisees. You've heard it said about how you need to not commit adultery. I tell you, whoever looks a woman of lust has committed adultery in his heart. You have heard it said, do not murder. I tell you, whoever has anger with his brother will be judged. And whoever calls his brother a fool will be liable to hellfire. You see, he is saying, Look, this is the new standard and I am building upon what was already there. I'm not doing away with murder, the law of mur- against murder. I'm not doing away with the law against adultery. I'm not doing away with any of the laws, he is saying, but I am coming to fulfill. I'm coming to build. I'm coming to fill up to give you more meaning and revelation upon how I want you to actually look. I see, brother, sister, the time is drawing more near than ever before. He is going to return one day. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be the one responsible for why our kids are falling away left, right and center because of a parent who has abandoned the ways of our father and exchanged his laws for tradition or exchanged his laws for what is more important to them and judge those who do not abide by their own standard while ignoring the standards of God that has been placed for all of us. You see, there is coming a time that he is going to separate the wheat from the chaff. He is going to draw a line in the sand. And the question is going to be, will you be on this side or that? Will you be one who abandoned his commandments and taught others to do so? Who will be least in the kingdom of heaven, as he has already warned? Or will you be one who goes ahead and values certain commandments over others? Or will you go ahead and be the one? who says, I don't care about any of that. I'm going to walk like Yeshua. I'm not going to elevate commandments for my own benefit. I am not going to abolish commandments for my own benefit. I am going to uphold it all, fulfill it all in my life. I am going to walk as Yeshua, because make no mistake, you can come up with all kinds of theologies here today. And I can talk about theology all day long. But this is the theology that matters. And this is the only thing that I want you to take away from this, if nothing at all, is what does Yeshua do? How did Yeshua walk? Because all that I am talking about today is to be more like him. And if you want to criticize me, that's what you're criticizing. Because all I've been saying this whole video is how do we look more like him? How do we not compromise? And so if Jesus kept the Sabbath, If Jesus ate no pork ever, if Jesus and his disciples caused our demons and healed the sick, then let it be in our lives. If Jesus didn't do hypocrisy, let it be that we are far from hypocrisy. What did Jesus do? Go look at his life, go study it, go see how he was at every feast. He kept the Passover every year, Sukkot every year, Shavuot every year, all of the feasts every year. He never stopped. He continued with his disciples and he never declared an end to them. Now, I know some of you have heard some pastors use words and tell you that that ends to these things have been declared by the Apostle Paul. But I want to say the same thing that Peter did. Be careful of the writings of Paul because he is easily misunderstood by those who do not know the law of God. We live in a cultured Christianity who hasn't studied the law of God for hundreds of years. It's time for us to get back to studying his law before we could ever understand Paul yet again. If you want to learn more about what we talked about in this video. I encourage you to watch my video called Scattered and Regathered, where I go into detail regarding the bigger story of scripture and how we fit into it. May the Father bless you. May he keep you may He shine his face upon you, may he lift up his countenance upon you. May he give you Shalom and Father, I pray that you would help us to get closer to you and help us to never be a reason for why we have these other sins birthed in this world. I pray, Lord, for you to do your work on us, for us to be far from hypocrisy, but close to imitating you so that our children and their children and their children's children will follow you authentically. Pray this in name, Yeshua. Amen. If this has blessed you and you want to see more of this, subscribe to this channel and like this video. And I want to say a special thank you to our partners who have made this video possible.